It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. A few weeks ago on the murder sheet, we covered the story of the High's ice cream murders. You can find the whole story in our earlier episodes, but in brief... Two young women were shot to death in the back of an ice cream store in Stanton, Virginia. William, or Bill, Thomas was arrested for that crime, tried, and acquitted. Decades later, a woman named Sharon Crawford confessed to the murders on her deathbed and alleged that the lead investigator on the case, David Bocock, knew she was guilty all along and covered up for her. We wanted to learn a bit more about the case and how it affected the community. And so we reached out to Courtney Stewart, one of the reporters who covered developments in the story after the confession. Courtney wasn't even based in the town where the murders happened. She worked for a newspaper in Charlottesville. Stanton is 
40 minutes from Charlottesville. So we were sort of reporting out of our area because it was such a crazy story. This week on The Murder Sheet, Courtney tells us the wild story of the aftermath of the High's ice cream murders. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout season one to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the murder sheet, and this is The High's Ice Cream Homicides, covering the case. Can you tell us a bit about yourself, how you came to be a journalist? Sure. So I, uh, I was actually late to the game of journalism. I was a psychology major in college, thought I would go to law school or med school or get a PhD in like forensic psychology or something. And I kind of floundered around. I ended up getting an internship in Richmond, Virginia at a weekly newspaper called uh, Style Weekly um, in the mid 90s. Um, and it was my absolute first foray into journalism, just something I thought maybe I would like. It turns out, loved it. Turned out it was a great match. Um, and so I went from this unpaid internship and got hired in a, you know, a calendar editor kind of position and just went from there. And I moved to Charlottesville um, and got in with the weekly paper, um, the first weekly paper in Charlottesville called Seagull Weekly in the late 90s. And then the Hook newspaper uh, was founded in 2002 after there was a rift between the owners of Seville Weekly, and one of them went off and started this new paper. And so I was the first employee at the Hook newspaper, which launched uh, in early February of 2002. And can you tell us a bit more about the Hook and sort of what the atmosphere was like to uh, work there at the time? Yeah, sure. I mean, it was a thrilling time for me uh, professionally because it was it was a newspaper that I was a founding staff member of, I mean, the first staff member. And so we started out and we were just kind of be kind of like a regular alt weekly, but there was already an alt weekly with kind of a heavy arts emphasis in town. And so as we looked for ways to differentiate, we realized that there was this niche for long form investigative journalism. And we just started kind of moving in that direction over the years until we never entirely got rid of arts and lifestyle coverage, but we really minimized it and became really all about local investigative journalism. And not all of it was long form, but it was just all news all the time. And it was just really formative for me and really just like 
a dream for a journalist. And uh, and what was sort of your niche or your beat within within that newsroom? So I think um, I started gravitating early on towards crime and criminal justice stories, and then probably as a result of doing a few. <laughs> They, they start coming to you. People start thinking of you as, oh, that's the person who does that kind of story. And so over time, I really um, specialized in crime reporting, uh, criminal justice issues as well. Uh, and that really became kind of my niche and my wheelhouse. What made you sort of gravitate towards crime reporting? Well, you know, I mean, I think my one of my early career goals was to be Clarice Starling um, from Silence of the Lambs, like an FBI agent, you know, hunting serial killers or something. I'd always thought I would do something kind of forensic. I've always loved investigating. I love puzzles. And there was something about that and sort of just the psychology and all of these stories, not so much the gratuitous violence, but just all of the human condition that ends up in these true crime stories, you know, both on the side of the perpetrator and then victims trying to survive this and how they come through these things and just the family members and also like a desire to find some sense of justice or have some impact for families who have been deeply harmed um, in some of these stories. And then I guess, you know, in terms of the context of the area, you know, could you go into sort of you know, having carved out this niche within the newsroom and with the hook kind of being at the forefront of covering crime in the area, you know, what was crime like in the in the general area, Charlottesville and the surrounding environs? Well, you would think that being a true crime reporter in a small college town like Charlottesville would be kind of a slow beat. In Charlottesville itself, I don't know if it's like a Bermuda Triangle kind of situation, but just bizarre things happen. It's not that the crime rate is high, it's that the crimes that were happening were just bizarre. Just all kinds of things. I and mean, we over over the over the 10 years or so, 12 years that the hook was um, in operation. I mean, there was basically like two serial killers operating in the area and uh, and then there were these other crimes that were just the motivations. I mean, they were sort of made for TV. We were constantly having the national news outlets come. And I would be joking, you know, they really should just set up a bureau here because they keep having to come back. Um, I mean, some of the cases that people might be familiar with from Charlottesville, Morgan Harrington and Hannah Graham, um, who were both um, murdered by Jesse Matthew. Um, The UVA lacrosse murder murder um, with George Hughley was another case that was here. So these were these were high profile cases that were bringing CNN and Fox and other uh, Washington Post and New York Times down to the area on a regular basis. Yeah, I, I was a student at uh, William and Mary when Hannah Graham disappeared. I remember it was mm. awful. Yeah, oh, so horrible. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then other like less high profile cases, but but just tons of them. Yeah. I mean, just it really was um, a remarkable time to be reporting, you know, locally and to be sort of the only one on the ground doing these kind of long investigations into these um, into these cases. And so and Stanton is is not, you know, it's a, about 30 to 40 minutes, basically west of Charlottesville, maybe northwest. And so it's another small college community, you know, but just central Virginia and sort of, you know, where it's at the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's scenic it's beautiful and it's historic and you just wouldn't think of these terrible crimes happening in this kind of bucolic 
setting. So it's sort of like the kind of the cliche about, you know, true crime where it's like a town where you wouldn't think something like highs would happen. Is that is that kind of the case for Stanton? Absolutely. Yeah. You would not think. I mean, just that has all the elements. I mean, it's just a, a bizarre case. And and I guess before you reported on sort of the fallout from that case, the Thomas lawsuit, um, I suppose, uh, had you heard at all about the Highs ice cream um, murders? I had. I had because, you know, we I had talked at various times with my colleagues and with people in the community about strange cases or things. And so it had come up, you know, it was it was a, a, a murder case I'd heard about, but I really didn't know very much about it until until there was this deathbed confession that one of my colleagues covered for the hook. So typically the same reporter would cut co- would would continue covering a case. And my recollection is that Lindsay Barnes, who was the reporter for us, who had done the original story on the case and who did a really great job, had gone had left the paper. I think he he had gone on he'd gone on to law school. At that point, you know, it's it's somebody else is going to pick this up. Um, and this was a really significant development with this man who'd been a suspect or one of the suspects in this case suing the city for $200 million. Let's take a quick break from the murder sheet to tell you about a podcast investigating yet another unforgettable crime. The Orange Tree is a seven-part series about a 2005 homicide that happened near the University of Texas at Austin. The murder of 21-year-old Jennifer Cave, who was shot, dismembered, and left in a bathtub at her friend Colton Petoniak's apartment, continues to haunt the area to this day. Like the Burger Chef murders, this case features plenty of twists and turns, including Colton's flight to Mexico with another UT student, Laura Hall. Both were later convicted in connection with the crime, although Colton has continued to appeal his verdict and claim innocence. The business student turned convicted murderer now says that he doesn't even remember much about the night Jennifer died. The Orange Tree is reported on and produced by Haley Butler and Tanu Thomas, who were both seniors at the University of Texas when they started this project. Together, Haley and Tanu strive to piece together this tragic story in an in-depth podcast that features audio from courtroom scenes and interrogation rooms, prison phone calls, and exclusive interviews with both the perpetrators and the victim's family. You can binge all seven episodes of The Orange Tree today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. 
It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year. In conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes, BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now back to the murder sheet. And can you tell us a bit about your you know, reporting process as you sort of picked up where Barnes left off and sort of started getting into this? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, of course, I was familiar with the story from him doing it, and I had been I had been sort of in an editor role some on his story, so I already knew the details of it. But I, you know, I was when somebody sues the city with the kind of, with the allegations that are in that were in the lawsuit that he filed, it's shocking. Um, I mean, the amount was shocking, but the allegations were also, I think, even more shocking than than the amount he was asking for. Um, and so, you know, I I I got the complaint, the criminal complaint, and read that, and and then started reaching out, and I was able to reach Bill Thomas, the man who filed suit, and speak with him. And you know, I I reached out to all the people that were involved um, just to try to find out what was going on here. Can you tell us about some of the allegations that he made in his lawsuit? Yeah, so he had been tried and acquitted in 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 the death of one of the two girls, young women that were killed. And he alleged that the lead investigator who had who had investigated the murders uh, knew that he was innocent, and he had covered it. You know, he had he had been protecting. The, the real killer, this woman who had worked at High's, um, Sharon Crawford. And it was a, you know, it's like a small town. And so people tend to like stay, you know, the, I find this with some other cases that I've done um, and I'm covering these small town crimes. The same people who were there 40 years ago are still there, like maybe in a slightly more advanced position or, you know, like, but they're still there. So, so the, the mayor at the time of this had, was a police veteran for the department. So it was just it like it pulled every and he was named in the suit. And so it pulled uh, local politicians and the police department. And, and then this like, you know, high profile case that in Stanton, you know, was a big deal. It just it really it was um, it was gripping. How did the community react to the, uh, the lawsuit and the allegations that he made? Well, I think I think there was shock. I don't actually live in Stanton, so I can't say, you know, from personal experience exactly how people have reacted in the years since then. But I mean, this this was definitely these allegations were really disturbing. And um, and Sharon Crawford had confessed, you know, on her deathbed two years earlier. So it was clear that that he wasn't you know, that he was he wasn't just trying to get out of something. I mean, he really had been under indictment and now somebody had confessed. So it was clear that. This guy had been harassed and targeted 
for years. Um, what do you remember about Mr. Thomas himself? You, mem- you, you mentioned that he represented himself and this had a pretty crushing impact on his life. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't meet him in person. I spoke to him by phone. I, I just remember him like just describing what he had been through over 40 years, his frustration. He, he was representing himself. I mean, he really he'd had he'd had a hard life. And, you know, I just I just remember thinking that's just really awful. You know, for 40 years, it's one thing to, you know, if, if all the evidence is pointing to you and you just happen, you know, they happen to be getting the wrong person, but to think that people knew that you were the wrong person and targeted you anyway, I had, I had a lot of compassion for him. And I just remember him, you know, sounding incredibly frustrated with what he's going through and, and really sounding like he had, he had suffered. Was anyone on sort of the the town side of things, you know, whether that's the police department or former detectives who were named or or even not named, did, did was anyone able to give you that side of the story or were they kind of closed with? Um, I spoke with the um the attorney that was representing the city. I, my recollection is that because this was an act, you know, this was a lawsuit, the people named in the suit wouldn't speak with me directly. So I was speaking with the attorney who was representing them. You know, and they, they were claiming that he wasn't harassed and it wasn't hanging over his head. What ended up happening with the lawsuit? Um, the lawsuit ended up being um, dismissed. I wanted to ask you, you know, the figure I think who really loomed large despite being dead, you know, within this trial was Dave Bocock. He's the lead investigator. He's the guy who uh, discovered the girls dying in the ice cream shop. He's there from the beginning. And then it turns out he's mentioned in this deathbed confession as covering up uh, the real killer. I, I guess my question for you is, you know, what did you learn about him? Right. I mean, I mean the allegations and, and his involvement or his alleged involvement, it's shocking you know, that, that he, that he would be the person, but that, I mean, she alleged in her deathbed confession that he helped her bury the murder weapon. I mean, so there, like, it wasn't just Bill Thomas making allegations. I mean, Sharon Crawford on her deathbed was basically saying, yeah, he did this. And then he had been demoted in the, I guess in 1980, I think I'm not looking at it right this second. I looked at it earlier. He'd been, he had been demoted but it, I don't think he ever, I don't think he was ever held accountable for, for you know, or pu- publicly accountable for what happened, unless I'm not aware of it. He had been demoted from investigation to auxiliary service in 1980, um, and that was when the, the mayor at the time of this lawsuit was deputy chief of police. So it seems to me just, you know, I, I don't know whether that demotion was related to this case. I, I don't have that specific knowledge, but... It certainly, certainly seems suspicious. And then there were the allegations in the suit, which I don't know. I mean, there are allegations that he had been romantically involved with Sharon Crawford, might have even had kids with her. But as far as I know, no DNA testing was even done. So, I mean, there were allegations of like really, really egregious involvement and corruption. So I think if the lawsuit had gone forward, we might have gotten more answers about that. And as it is, I mean, there are allegations and... I, I, my understanding is he's dead. Uh, so, and Sharon Crawford said, so I'm not sure how we would learn more about it at this point. Can you discuss some of those more egregious allegations that were in the lawsuit? Well, I mean, I think if, you know, if he, if he has fathered children with the real murderer and then helps her cover it up, I think that's pretty egregious if that's true in his position as a law enforcement officer that he, 
would do that and would allow this other guy to be living under a cloud of suspicion for decades. You know, I mean, I guess that's what I mean by um, potentially egregious, if that's true. We've also read that it was alleged that he might have been her father. He might have been um, Sharon Crawford's father. Mm -hmm. I hadn't. If that, if that that might be in Lindsay's story. <laughs> um, I, maybe I did hear that. Oh my god! Isn't that crazy? Like the whole thing is so it's so sordid. You know, it's like oh it's like gosh, which which is worse? <laughs> what is going on in these small towns? Um. I mean, I guess for you as as a journalist who covers crime and who still covers crime, um, you know, on, on a true crime podcast, you know, how, how did this case sort of and, and the sort of shocking outcome influence how you think about crime? I think I mean, I think for me, the thing that is always um, compelling is just um, the human potential for good and evil and the complexity of people's, you know, psychology and the fact that, you know, people do, people have all kinds of motivations for doing, um, you know, terrible things. And, uh, you know, I think people have the potential for great good and great evil. And so, I mean, a case like this just shows that no matter how small the town or no matter how idyllic the setting, you know, if there are humans involved, things can get really messed up. <laughs> I wonder, That's, could you tell us a little bit about your uh, own true crime podcast? Yeah, sure. So I uh, I work on a true crime podcast called Small Town Big Crime. I have two colleagues who are both journalists, one of whom I co-write. We do all the reporting and the uh, writing. And then our other partner does the sound, and she is the host. Um, so she reads, she hosts the podcast. And so it's kind of a long-form thing. We actually, we started working on it in well, really late 2018, but we got serious about it in 2019. And it's been, it's been this kind of insane live investigation. So it's just taking us uh, forever to get to the end of it because we keep get making progress in this old case, uh, it, the murders of Derek and Nancy Hayson in Bedford County in 1985. And uh, Jens Soaring and his then girlfriend, Elizabeth Hayson, who were both UVA students at that time in 1985, they both, well, Elizabeth Hayson pled guilty. Jens Soaring was convicted at trial, but has since his trial, at his trial and since then, claimed that he gave a false confession and that he only did it to protect her and that, you know, that somebody else actually committed the crime. And so over time, there's been some DNA stuff that's come out since that, that Jens and his team have said points to alternate suspects, two, two unidentified men. And so our podcast has been an effort to answer some of those questions and to figure out whether two other people really bled at the scene and what the, you know, what happened at trial and what the evidence really shows. Sounds fascinating. Virginia, though. I mean, geez. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. These small towns. I mean, these things are nuts. Like just, you know, weird, weird cases. So it goes back, yeah, at least that far. So well, Kurt, maybe things are weird in other places, too. I just I just keep thinking, like, what is up with, you know, Central Virginia? Yeah. It's been, well, you know, actually, and then. I don't think there have been any of these high profile, like really bizarre crimes, but that's because since 2017, Charlottesville was, you know, Charlottesville had August 12th and we were like the, like the magnet for the uh, Confederate monuments and the, the tiki torches and, you know, murderous rampage that the neo-Nazis went on. And so, you know, since then, I mean, it was that. So it's like, it just, it never gets to just be like a quiet town. Yeah, I, I always felt like that. 
you guys couldn't get a break, at least when I was in Virginia. <laughs> I know. It's like, great. You know, we just, we just, you know, get through all this stuff. And now, now like Charlottesville becomes like almost a shorthand um, for white supremacist violence. So, yeah. I mean, as a journalist, it's like, okay, well, we're busy. We got plenty to do. But like as a resident, you're like, you know, this is this is really hard on this community. We would like to thank Courtney Stewart again for speaking with us this week. Her own true crime podcast, Small Town Big Crime, is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenlee, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MurderSheet and on Facebook at MSheetPodcast or by searching MurderSheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure and send tips, suggestions, and feedback to MurderSheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>